Warning, this episode will contain spoilers for the true crime podcast series, Hunting Mr. X. If you haven't listened to all five episodes of the podcast, I'd recommend you stop and finish the series. If you have, I'm happy to welcome you back to Hunting Mr. X. I'm investigative journalist Brendan Duggan, and from the Press and Journal and The Courier, this is Hunting Mr. X, the story of Julian Chisholm and the biggest drugs importation in Scottish history. Our five-part true crime podcast series launched three months ago, and we have been blown away by the reaction. Thank you to everyone who has supported us so far, and we're so glad you've enjoyed our series. To celebrate its success, we decided to put together not one, but two special bonus episodes. In this bonus episode, we'll bring you two brand new interviewees, a journalist and a detective who were working during the case of Mr. X. I'll ask them what the 80s and 90s were like when it came to drugs, organized crime, and how, when the police finally smashed Mr. X's drugs operation, things only got worse. In the next bonus episode, releasing next week, we'll take you behind the scenes with the making of Hunting Mr. X, where I will interview investigative journalist Dale Haslam. When Julian Chisholm was just an unknown oil diver in Aberdeen, trying to break into the oil industry, retired Detective Chief Superintendent Neil Leslie stepped into the world of organised crime in another part of the country. I joined the, the police service in Scotland in 1977 and moved to a force in the Midlands uh, in England in 1980. And before the end of 1980, um, I became a detective. I went into CID. And effectively, I, I was a detective through every rank um, uh, during my 33 years police service. And I finished in the rank of detective chief superintendent. And during that period um, I, that I served in every rank within uh, the CID, I was seconded a number of times to what was then the regional crime squads of England and Wales, which subsequently became the National Crime Squad, which subsequently became the Serious and Organised Crime Agency, and which subsequently became, which is now the National Crime Agency. But by 1987, I was a detective sergeant on what was the then the regional crime squads of England and Wales and they had the responsibility, there were nine regional crime squads across England and Wales and they had the responsibility for investigating serious and organised crime and what was actually in, in, in the 80s considered to be criminals who travelled around the region or around the country committing crime. In 1987, before Julian Chisholm became Mr. X, the world of organised crime looked a lot different. According to Neil Leslie, drugs were not a huge focus for the big players in organised crime. I asked Neil why this was the case. There, there was almost, if you would believe, uh, the criminal element of the time, there was almost a, uh, an espoused chivalry that the, the organised criminals of the time who were probably, who'd built their reputations on doing things like armed robbery, where there was a predisposition, an obvious predisposition towards violence or at least the threat of violence and carrying firearms and that kind of thing. There was almost 
I think they felt a kind of honour in that type of criminality and they perceived at that time that drug trafficking was really something that they didn't want to be seen to be involved in. I think even they at that time recognised that there was a real risk to normal everyday people from drug trafficking. Now that may well be something, of course, that they just wished to put out there. Uh, but I, I suspect that actually there was, and, and certainly some of the criminals that I dealt with, I, I tend to believe that they thought that they didn't really want to get involved in drug trafficking because they would lose their respect amongst their peers. Admittedly, even those investigating organised crime didn't see drugs as an immediate or serious threat. At that time, between 87 and 90, when I was seconded as a detective sergeant, there, there was an absence of drug cases. We didn't really investigate organised drug trafficking cases or organised criminals who were, were involved in drug trafficking in that way. Now, each individual police force at that time would have had a drug squad, but drug squads were really focused much more on street-level dealing and that kind of thing. They didn't really have the capacity or the capability to target large-scale uh, drug trafficking operators. I, I would I would caveat that by saying there would have been one or two of the major metropolitan forces who were probably involved in some drug trafficking investigative activity, but principally the overwhelming majority of England and Wales, and I would argue also Scotland, because obviously we had some uh, cooperation with Scottish officers at that time, were involved in the types of criminality that I've just mentioned. And in fact, I seem to recall that it was about the time where I was um, about to come off the regional crime squad for the first time that we began to see the emergence of regional drugs units. There were so dedicated drugs units that were um, beginning to appear across the UK. It was at this time that Mr X started his operation, and we all know how that story went. Chisholm created a drugs network that stretched across Scotland. Chisholm, at the height of his power, made a deal with the Cali cartel and attempted to pull off the biggest drugs importation in Scottish history. It was also around this time that the landscape of crime in the UK changed forever. Neil Leslie saw it, but so did others. What about from a different perspective? Richard Prest is our Head of Content Development at The Courier and The Press and Journal, and was the one who decided we should investigate Mr X. But back when Mr X was still operating in the 80s and the 90s, Richard was a crime reporter working out of Aberdeen. He remembers the story of Julian Chisholm and his gang. Well, when I was a very young reporter, and I mean very young, uh, back in the early 90s, this was a story that was developing not far from my patch. I was at the Evening Express at the time as a crime reporter, and this was unfolding in Ullapool, which was covered by our sister paper, the Press and Journal. Um, Looking in from afar, it was quite an incredible story. Um, you had local fishermen, a local North Sea diver. You suddenly had the Cali cartel. You had a round-the-world international police hunt. And you had a jailbreak as well. So it was a remarkable crime story, something that in that part of the country we certainly hadn't seen before. So it came up to the 30th anniversary and... 
my memories uh, were freshened by the anniversary coming round, and that's where we suggested to Dale that this was worth an investigation, particularly when the main suspect, the ringleader of the gang, was still at large. Towards the end of the 80s and into the early 90s, Scotland and the UK witnessed a dramatic rise in drug crime and organised criminal activity around drugs. Chisholm wasn't the only player, there were others too. As a reporter, Richard was covering this dramatic rise. Decades later, along with investigative journalist Dale Haslam, Richard would pen A History of Drugs, which documented the rise of drugs in Aberdeen from the 1980s to the year 2000. To give context to this case, you have to go further back than the early 1990s. And if you go back to the sort of drug scene in Scotland, late 70s, early 80s, it was very much concentrated in big urban areas like Glasgow and Edinburgh. And it tended to be small pockets of heroin dealing in particular uh, that were involved. Roll forward a few years, you then start to approach 88, 89 into 1990. That was when a new youth culture emerged, um, a subculture, rave scene, dance music. And accompanying that change in scene was the arrival of ecstasy. That was a hugely pivotal time for that kind of criminality. All of a sudden, drugs became mainstream. So whereas before, in the early 80s, drugs might have been confined to, as I said, big cities like Glasgow and Edinburgh, and also confined to sort of maybe poorer areas, um, housing estates, etc. Ecstasy and its arrival in 88, 89 involved a wider generation. Um, Middle-class kids, working-class kids, that's where it started to really you know, expand at that point, 88, 89 into 1990. It wasn't just the big cities either. It then grew into rural areas, Fraserburgh, Aberdeen, Inverness, Ullapool. As that expanded, the criminality expanded because as you can imagine, where there's money to be made from drug dealing, that's where more people get involved. Although Chisholm didn't single-handedly start this drug crisis, it was after the 1990 drug importation that things really took off. Shortly after Chisholm went on the run in 1993, Neil Leslie returned to the organised crime squad and found everything had changed. So I, I left uh, the regional crime squad as a detective sergeant in uh, 1990 and I went back to my force where I was then attached to what was our fourth serious crime squad. And even at that time, so let's say between 1990 and 1994, again, the four serious crime squad were very heavily involved in cases, what I would call traditional organised crime cases, armed robberies, those types of things, sophisticated um, burglar, burglary operations, fraud, those kinds of things. But in 1994, uh, after I'd been promoted to detective inspector, I was seconded back to the uh, regional crime squad uh, in the Midlands. And when I got back there as a detective inspector, I'd noticed that the landscape had changed almost completely and the opposite prevailed, that the what I'd call the traditional organised crime cases were in the overwhelming minority and the cases that were overwhelmingly in the majority were drug trafficking cases. Suddenly, organised crime gangs wanted a slice of the huge sums of money that could be made from drugs. Neo's team went from dealing with nearly no drug cases to spending most of their time combating the crisis. 
I mean, I, I think there's there's a couple of things to bear in mind here. When you look at the the landscape, the punishment landscape in respect of um, things like armed rom- robbery, they attracted a huge amount of um, imprisonment in terms of uh, sentencing. And they were the types of criminality whereby there was a high degree of risk involved for the criminals involved because, of course, it meant that they actually had to physically put themselves at the scene of the crime. Whereas, of course, with drug trafficking, everything goes on fairly um, covertly. People meet in secret. People at the top of the criminal tree almost never have to get their hands on the product themselves. So there's the, the, the degree of risk, at least in their eyes at that time, was minimised. And I think that's actually what attracted them, apart from, of course, the most obvious fact that there were significantly more amounts of money to be made from it. The police surveillance techniques were, were not sophisticated. It was very, very difficult for the police to build a case to build the drugs case back in those days, you know, the police were, first of all, they didn't have decades of experience of that type of case building. And secondly, they didn't have the sophistication um, technologically um, that now exists. So it was actually very, very, a lot more difficult probably than it is nowadays to build a case around uh, drug trafficking. In the newsroom, Richard saw this change as well and the harsh impact it was having on local communities and those who were living within them. Around that time and when, when Chisholm was operating and subsequently after, we spoke earlier about the, the kind of boom and ecstasy. That then opened the floodgates for other drugs. I think it's, it's very clear to say that. If you can imagine, if you're a drug dealer and you're in the game of making money, why would you just focus on one product? You'll focus on two or three different products. So instead of just selling ecstasy, you might supply cannabis, you might supply cocaine, and you might supply heroin. And what we then saw, or how we saw the landscape change in that kind of mid to late 90s, was the impact of that proliferation of different drugs. And as you can imagine, heroin and cocaine are much more addictive, and you start to see real societal problems develop on the back of that. Drug deaths increased in Scotland immeasurably. Inquisitive crime, housebreaking, went through the roof, particularly in areas like Aberdeen, etc. And I think, speaking to, to my sources as part of that History of Drugs series that we, we developed, the human tragedy was the thing that became really, really clear. I remember one former senior drug squad officer telling me of a story in Aberdeen's Northfield where they had a phone call from a concerned neighbour saying that they could hear a baby crying in the house next door and nobody seemed to be dealing with the baby crying. So officers were sent up to the scene, tried the door, no answer. Eventually they forced entry because they could hear the baby still crying. When they go into the flat, they find a young couple lying dead on the sofa with needles still in their arm and the baby still in a cot crying. And that, for the officer I spoke to, really focused the human tragedy involved in the scale of the problem. Um, and what might have been seen in 88, 89 as a kind of a youth trend of the arrival of ecstasy had morphed into something hugely sinister, hugely destructive and hugely problematic for politicians, healthcare, communities at large and also the police. Um, and I mentioned before, policing at that time changed substantially. You know, technology became more involved. Tapping phones, wires, video surveillance, everything ratcheted up a gear 
because the drug dealers had gone up a gear, so the policing had to go up a gear as well. As we discovered during the case of Mr X, South American gangs like the Calais cartel were also watching the drug crisis play out in the UK, seeing it as an opportunity. I, I would say that my, um, my understanding of the, the South American uh, cocaine organised uh, criminal landscape was, was probably um, came far more into focus when I was working overseas as a United Kingdom liaison officer for organised crime in, in Europe. Mm. Um, because at that point we were seeing uh, a lot of cocaine coming from South America to the UK via um, European countries to make it look like it, it wasn't actually physically coming directly to the UK from South America. And there were a number of different guises that um, criminal organisations would use for that. South American criminals were using criminals from the Caribbean. They were also using criminals from um, West Africa as intermediaries to broker deals with UK criminals. And why do you think they were doing that? Were they, were they were trying to break into the UK market, were they? Oh, I don't think there's any. I think probably by that time they were already well established in the UK market. I, 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 would, I imagine that the transformation of the organized land, uh, crime landscape probably took less than five years um, where you, you, the UK experienced a, 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 a sea change from uh, the type of traditional criminality that I explained earlier, your armed robberies and organized burglaries and, and that kind of thing, to, to a, a landscape where the more sophisticated criminals were almost exclusively involved in drug trafficking. Towards the end of his career, Neil worked in Europol and brought his expertise from the UK to that part of the world. When Chisholm escaped, no one had any idea where he went. There were theories that he fled into Morocco or Africa. There were also theories that he stayed in Spain. What if he had moved further into Europe, which also had a huge drug industry? I asked Neil, how plausible was it for Chisholm to have joined the drug industry in Europe? You know, I find that almost implausible. The reason for that is you have to imagine that to, to you, you can't you don't just become a member of an organised crime group. First of all, they're highly suspicious. So to to present yourself at a level where you would even get a meeting would be extremely difficult. Almost certainly. If you went to a country where you were predisposed to um, joining a, an organised criminal enterprise, you would have to be introduced to a group there by someone who had a level of trust with the organisation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's inconceivable that a complete stranger would just get themselves embroiled in organised crime in another country. It's just not, that's just not feasible. So unless he had already made connections there maybe when living in morocco or, or spain he you know it, it wasn't the case where he could just jump in to another country's enterprise as i said highly highly improbable and, and i think that had that been the case it's almost inevitable that there would have been some law enforcement um awareness 
of the fact that there was someone new on the scene, someone mm. um, probably who was a Brit, um, and that would have actually alerted um, probably the UK authorities to the fact that there was someone there. And, and, and my feeling is that that would have led to Chisholm being identified wherever he was then uh, potentially living. Neil isn't the first ex-law enforcement source I've heard this from. Lots of British criminals escape abroad to avoid custody and justice in the UK. Remember the Costa del Sol, the haven for criminals on the run? But I've been told by another ex-law enforcement expert that most of them end up being caught because they slip up, or they become embroiled in another gang, or they try to contact a loved one back home. But in the last 30 years, it is believed that no one has heard anything from Julian Chisholm. And what do you think the likelihood is that he's still out there on the run from your professional opinion? I would say highly unlikely. I mean, I don't know whether whether there is evidence that he was still alive for quite a period after his uh, escape from prison. Um, you know, I don't know what the evidence is to suggest that. But not only was he a threat outside the prison, um, you have to bear in mind, I think, that the, the, as soon as Chisholm is arrested, he becomes a threat to the people who he knows in in the criminal enterprise because, of course, he might uh, turn into a police informer. Uh, he might decide that he's going to go into witness protection and give evidence against these people. And, of course, they don't know that because only Chisholm really knows that. Um, so he's he's highly, highly vulnerable. Um, and when he escapes from prison, he's still a risk to um, the, the, the cartel because... He owes the money, and uh, he might decide even then when he's at liberty that he's going to do something that will hurt their infrastructure. And that's then when they do become vulnerable. Losing a large amount of cocaine might not make them vulnerable. They might be annoyed about it, annoyed enough to kill someone, but it doesn't make them particularly vulnerable. But when he's in a position perhaps to offer evidence, to allow the, place, the police in in Spain or the United Kingdom or any other country to build a case against people who live in Colombia, then they're, then they're vulnerable. And that's when they would probably take steps to make sure that that vulnerability was eliminated. So could the Cali cartel have come after Chisholm? It wouldn't be the first time they had silenced someone who worked for them. Indeed, intelligence suggests that there was a contract out for the life of Francisco Jose Butores the man who shipped Mr. X's cocaine and who was arrested in Canada in episode four of the series. The thing is, if they did, we would never know. Finally, it was Richard who started us down this path of hunting Mr. X. The story has brought us to Ullapool, to the highlands of Scotland, to Aberdeen, across the sea to Spain, Morocco, Canada and South America. We learned that because of people like Julian Chisholm, drugs flooded Scotland and families were torn apart. I asked Richard, what is Julian Chisholm's legacy? I don't think it's so much about the legacy. I think it's about what he represented. And Julian Chisholm represented an example of the gear change and criminal operations that were ongoing in Scotland at that time. 
you know, I was a, a young reporter at the time. I remember speaking to councillors and politicians about the drug problem, particularly in, in rural areas like the Highlands, Aberdeenshire, Murray, etc. And there was a lot of denial at the time. A lot of heads in the sand, it isn't a problem here. As though it was wrong to admit you had a problem because in some way you'd be looked down upon as a, a community. And I think he represented a, a, a really clear you know, example of how things had changed. And it had almost gone you know, unnoticed by not so much police and not so much customs, but policymakers in particular. Um, and I think it's you know touching upon that kind of criminality of, of huge scale operating in rural areas or, or quieter areas every time away from Edinburgh and Glasgow it showed how the scale had just increased incredibly over a very, very short period of time in, as I described, very seemingly quiet parts of Scotland. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of Hunting Mr X. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend Hunting Mr X to your family and friends or any other true crime podcast fans you know. Be sure to follow us for updates on any future episodes or other podcasts from us. If you have any questions about Mr X or tips about Julian Chisholm, please contact the email brendan.duggan at dcthompson.co.uk. You can also find this email in our description. Mr X is brought to you by The Courier and The Press and Journal. I'm your host, Brendan Duggan. It was produced by Brendan Duggan and Morvin McIntyre. Cheryl Livingstone is our special projects editor. Special thanks to our guests, Neil Leslie, and our head of content development, Richard Prest.